Let's turn to Philippians 4, verse 13. Philippians 4, uh, and this is the last of our sermon series out of context. Some of you are probably glad about that because I've been, I've been destroying in your mind some of your favorite verses of scripture and showing you, okay, it doesn't really mean that, but I hope you understand. I, I hope this is what has actually happened. You've seen that the Bible is so much better than what we thought it was. When we read scripture for what it really says instead of what we assume it says. We learn so much more about who God is and how much more wonderful he is than we thought. And today we're looking at Philippians 4. By the way, uh, before I get into that, next week, the sermon series we're gonna, be begin is, we're gonna begin is gonna be called Since Heaven is Real. So we're gonna talk about the fact that if we really believe that there is a place after this life that's so much better than this, if we have all this information in the scriptures about what that world is like, how should we be living? Because a lot of us Christians don't live as if we actually believe that heaven exists. So that's next week. We're gonna start this new series, Since Heaven is Real. Today, we're looking at the, the last of our verses out of context. And I told this story. I'm gonna start with this story that I told last fall. And some of you heard it. Some of you haven't. You're gonna hear it again. So last November, my son Will was running in the cross-country state championship meet. Um, he was running for Covenant Christian, you know, so these were mostly small private Christian schools and 3.15 mile uh, race, a 5K race. And so along the course of the race, there's this kid in front of him and he's trailing this kid for a long, long way. And you get tired looking at the same back all that distance while your legs are dead and you're lungs are burning. And so he finally says, psychs himself up and says, okay, I'm going to pass him. And he surges in, in speed. He gets right up next to the kid. And right then the kid yells out, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and then takes off. <laughs> and so I asked Will, I said, so did you catch up to him later? And he goes, no, I guess Christ strengthened him a little too much for me. <laughs> Which if you know Will is a very Will thing to say. And, and, and yet, is that really what that verse means? I mean, I know that's the way we, we use it often. If you're taking a big test and you don't feel confident you're gonna do well in the test, you use that verse to give yourself confidence. God's gonna give me power. He's gonna enable me to pass this, maybe even ace it. You've got a big presentation at work and you wanna do well. You're going in to ask your boss for a raise and you're really anxious about it. This is kind of our all-purpose uh, I can do all things, right? That's the part we focus on. I can do all things. Is that really what it means? Well, if it did, then that means you take it to its logical extension. Then whatever I choose to do, God will give me the power to accomplish it. I literally cannot fail. I literally could walk out onto any NFL training camp today and say, I'm, I'm joining the team. And they would say, come on in. You know, okay, so you're half the size of all of our players. You're smaller than the kicker. You're even on the wrong side of 50, but you know what? We're gonna give you the opportunity to fulfill your lifelong dream of being a professional football player. Do y'all think that's possible? Do you think that I should try? Anybody? Yeah, I got one guy on my side. No, it's not gonna happen. Okay, maybe I could make the Texans. Yeah, maybe them. But... <laughs> It's going to be a long year, y'all. It's going to be a long, long year. But it doesn't work that way. And we know this because we've all tried. We've prayed and we failed the test anyway. We prayed and we didn't get the race. We prayed and we lost the race. 
Is that because we didn't have enough faith? We're not a good enough person? Or is that because we're using Philippians 4.13 in a way it isn't meant to be used? You know, the Bible teaches that there are incredible things that happen when God gives us power to accomplish them. We see a guy named Gideon, who's a self-described coward, and he leads an army, uh, if you can call it that, of 300 men with no weapons whatsoever against a, a force so large that covers the hillside and they win. We see a widow uh, in a a town called Zarephath, and all she's got is a handful of flour and a little oil at the bottom of a jar, and she feeds herself and her son and and the prophet Elijah for weeks with just that little scrap of food. So yeah, if God wants you to do something impossible, he will give you the ability to do something impossible. The, The thing we don't understand, in the Bible, those things didn't happen every day. They were called miracles for a reason. They weren't called ordinaries. They were called miracles. They happened rarely. They happened when God chose to supernaturally intervene and do something that got everybody's attention. So we have to understand that we don't get everything we want. So what is Philippians 4.13 really about? What have I told you from the very beginning of this series? Don't take one verse Instead, read the verses around it and make sure you get it in the context of the sentence that Paul or the, or the writer is using. Secondly, ask yourself, what did this mean to the people who first heard it? Who first heard this? Who was it written to? How did they understand it? And number three, how does this compare with what the rest of the Bible teaches? Okay, so with that in mind, let's start with verse 10 of Philippians 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now the context matters. If you read the whole book of Philippians, you find out that Paul is writing to a church in Philippi, a Greek city. And if you read the book of Acts, you see that Acts 16 tells the story of how he started that church. He and Silas went to the city of Philippi. They met a a devout Jewish woman named Lydia. Uh, They met uh, a slave girl who was possessed of a demon and they delivered her. They were thrown in jail, were beaten by a jailer and, and then locked in stocks. And then later an earthquake came and set them free and the jailer was about to kill himself, but Paul and Silas led him to Christ and he and all his family were saved. That's the beginning of that church. So all these years later, Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel and the church at Philippi sends him a gift. And when I say sends him a gift, I don't mean they sent him something wrapped in pretty paper. You see, in jail in those days, You had to provide for your own food, your own clothing, your own care. You had to hope that someone loved you enough to bring you that stuff. The Philippians were sending money or resources of some kind so that Paul could take care of his own needs. This was big. So the the book of Philippians in the Bible is literally a thank you note. It's Paul saying, thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for taking care of me. But you see what he says in that passage we just read. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, he says. It's not that I needed what you gave. It's not that I would have died if you hadn't provided. I would have been okay because God has taught me something. He has taught me the secret of being happy, whether I'm full or hungry, uh, whether I'm in prison or set free, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm stressed out or completely chill. I 
have joy in my heart. I have contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what he's talking about. So if you're an athlete and you write Philippians 4.13 on your eye black or write it on the side of your sneakers or your cleats, the message you are sending to, your, to everyone looking is, whether I win or lose, I'm going to be happy. It's not because I have this on my cleats. I can run faster, jump higher, throw farther, hit harder. That's not what Philippians 4.13 means. It means God has given me the power. No matter what the world throws at me, I have a suit of armor protecting my joy. Nothing can take it away. I can rejoice. I can live in happiness. I can have peace because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here's a good definition of contentment. It's the ability to say, God has already given me all that I need to be happy, to be satisfied. If I need something else, he'll provide it as I serve him faithfully. Can you say that? I already have everything I need. If God never gives me another thing, I can be happy with what I have. That's contentment. And notice in verse 11, Paul said, he has taught me. In other words, Paul didn't emerge from the womb content. You know what? None of us do. You ever, uh, you ever been around a baby? You ever been a baby? Yes. Yeah, you know, babies are the least content humans on the earth, right? And, and even as toddlers, they, they're constantly asking for something, grasping for something. When our firstborn, Kaylee, when she was a little girl, two years old, we used to live in another town, Stockdale, Texas. Don't worry, you don't know where it is. Uh, there was a restaurant we would eat at at least once a week, Sylvia's uh, Tex-Mex place. And Sylvia really loved little Kaylee. So every time we'd go up to the counter to pay, she would give her a bag of M&Ms from behind the counter. And so Kaylee began to associate Sylvia's with M&Ms. And so when you've got a two-year-old, you have to distract them from the M&Ms. You have to say, you, have, you, you can't say the word M&Ms out loud because if you say that, that child immediately thinks the, the M&Ms need to be in her hands. And so here's what would happen. We'd be eating our enchiladas and, and Carrie would look across the table at me and say, um, you take Kaylee for a walk and I'll go up to the counter and pay and get our upside down W's. Yeah, that was our code, Right. And that's what you have to do because children just aren't content by nature. But it's our job as parents to teach them contentment. Now, how do we do that? You're gonna love this. So this is an actual verse of scripture. I promise it's not gonna be your favorite. Psalm 131 verse two. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. So contentment is being like a weaned child. A weaned child is a child that isn't asking for anything. They're just happy to be with its mom, right? Now, how do you wean a child? Two words, strategic disappointment. You see what I mean? You're not gonna like this verse. When you're weaning a child, you're having to transition that child from the expectation that every time I cry, I'm going to get food. They go from that to sometimes I cry and mom and dad don't show up at all. Sometimes I cry and maybe they rock me or they, they speak soothing words to me, but they don't give me food. Sometimes I cry and nothing happens. And you've got to go through that because the child's got to be able to sleep through the night. That is what it means to wean a child, strategic disappointment. And that's what God is doing in our lives. And you might say, well, that's, that's terrible, Jeff. I mean, this is not, I came in, this is one of my favorite verses of all, and you've made it into something terrible, something that means that God's not always gonna give me what I want. Okay, understand something. God does this because he loves you. 
Let me, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Why is contentment so important? When uh, our daughter got a little bit older, when she was four years old, I, I started taking her on these little daddy-daughter dates because I wanted to make sure that any man who ever dated her would come in distant second, you know, when I got... So, so I took her on this... That was a joke. I, I took her on this date to the Cockrell Butterfly Center in downtown Houston, you know, the Museum of Natural Sciences. Anybody ever been to the Butterfly Center? Yeah, great, great place. If you haven't been, I highly recommend it. So it's just... Pyramid, inside there's this miniature uh, rainforest, all these, all these animals and, and plants and, and this beautiful scenery and then butterflies everywhere. And the lady who sold us the tickets said, you know, sometimes a butterfly will land on you, which is a terrible thing to say to a four-year-old. Because the whole time we were there, Kaylee is just like, okay, there's a butterfly, I'm gonna go get it. And she knew she couldn't touch it, but she would run up to it so that hopefully it would land on her. Well, that's, of course, the last thing you want to do if you want something to land on you. And I, I tried and tried to explain this to her, and it didn't work. Now, there were other animals in the rainforest. There was this big, long, orange iguana named Sydney that terrified and also intrigued our daughter. So, so I, I pointed him out. We found some fish in the stream that went through there, and I pointed them out. And while we were standing there looking at the fish... I looked over and Kaylee had a butterfly sitting right on her head. And I, I practically screamed out, Kaylee, you got one! And I honestly don't know if we're welcome at the Butterfly Center anymore. But Nathaniel Hawthorne, remember him? The guy who wrote The Scarlet Letter? He had something to say about this, believe it or not. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote, happiness is like a butterfly, which when pursued is always beyond our grasp. But if you will sit down quietly, may alight upon you. And that's the story of contentment. The harder you chase happiness and the things you think are going to make you happy, the more you'll look around and think, yeah, I've got them, but I, I'm still not happy. It's only when you sit still. It's only when you stop chasing that happiness. I know it's counterintuitive. It's only when you stop trying to make your life perfect that you find you've got everything you need. So how do we get there? How do we sit still? How do we learn contentment? Three things. Number one, give your desires to God. See, our desires are, 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 are what causes so much pain. I, I'll, here's, here's evidence from James, James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, part of our problem is we suffer from the, the if-only syndrome. The if-only syndrome that says, if only I could have this, if only I could have that, if only... If only I, I could look this certain way, then people would treat me better. If only I had married somebody different, then I would be happier. If only I could make this much money, then I could afford the kinds of things that I need. And those if onlys can cause us to make terrible mistakes. They can lead us into awful sins. As James says, this is the cause of the divisions in the world today. This is the cause of the, the violence, the fighting, the hatred. But even if it doesn't lead us into terrible sins, even if it doesn't lead us to cheating on our spouse, even if it doesn't lead us to robbing someone or hurting someone, it steals our joy. It takes away, Here, here's, the, here's the situation, guys. We're so busy chasing the one butterfly we don't have, we miss all the wonders that God has already given us. 
We fail to enjoy the blessings of God. So is, is the answer, we just need to get rid of all desires? That's what the Stoics taught when Paul was here. That's what Buddhism teaches today. Eliminate all desire and you'll achieve nirvana. But that's not what the Bible teaches. 1 Timothy 6.8 says, if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. If, Paul says. In other words, there are situations where God doesn't want you to be content. If you're starving, don't be content with your starvation. Go get what you need. Do what you have to do. If you can't take care of your family, then God doesn't want you to be stuck in that situation. Take it further. If your life is in danger, if you are in an abusive relationship, God's not saying, oh, just sit still. It'll be fine. You know, just suck it up. That's not what this means. But if your basic needs for, for safety and for care and for basic welfare are taken care of, then you need to learn what to do with your other desires. Your desires aren't bad, by the way. If you weren't hungry, you'd never eat and you'd starve to death. If human beings didn't have a desire for the opposite gender, we would never get married, no children would be born, and the human race would cease to exist. Desire on its own is a good thing. It's what you do with your desire that matters. So what do we do with those desires that that don't have anything to do with our basic welfare, but they're things we desperately want and we don't have them? What do we do with those? So here's a, a wife who's just like, you know, if only he would listen to me once in a while. Here's a husband who's like, if only she would treat me the way she did when we first got married, back when, you know, we acted like we were actually in love. Here's here's a a kid who just wishes he would fit in better with other kids his age. Here's Here's a woman who's struggling with arthritis and wishes that would become more manageable so she can get back to doing things she used to do. Here's a guy who's an older man and his kids never call him. If only, you know, somebody would just check on me once in a while. Here's a young woman who wishes she could get out of debt, a a dad who wishes he could afford to put his kids in a nicer neighborhood. None of those desires are bad. You're not a bad person for wanting those things. In fact, God wants you to bring those things to him and lay them at his feet and say, Lord, these are the desires of my heart. But you don't say to him, okay, God, if you don't give this to me, I can never be happy. When I say, give your desires to the Lord, here's what I mean. Pray to the Lord and say, Lord, these are the desires of my heart. These are the things that are breaking my heart. And I know that if, if this is right, you'll give them to me. But if it's not, I just want you to know, Lord, you're enough for me. You need to say that. Jesus taught us to pray, if it be your, your will, Lord, if it be your will. If this is according to your plan, then give it to me. If not, Lord, I don't want it. Teach me to be happy without it. Remember, remember our little girl wanting those M&Ms? She would have been a lot happier if she would have realized, you know, my parents love me and they know more than I do. They'll give me the M&Ms when it's time. How much happier, how much less drama, how much less stress would there have been? That's what it means to give your desires over to the Lord. It's to say, I'm, I'm laying all this at your feet, God, and I know you're gonna give it to me when it's time and if it's right. I already have everything I need in order to be satisfied. And if I need something else, you'll give it to me as I serve you faithfully. Number two, recognize the voices that destroy contentment. Every day we hear voices that make us less content with our lives. And a lot of those are advertisements. You probably see or read or hear dozens of different ads on TV, podcasts, internet, billboards, 
radio, if anybody still listens to the radio. And here's the thing, every single advertisement you experience, the whole purpose of it is to make you discontented. You can't possibly be happy in that rundown car you're driving. You can't tell me, okay, so it's reliable, but that's a terror. You deserve better than that car. Come see us and we'll put you in something you deserve. What, you, you think you look good in those clothes? You do not look good in those clothes, not at all. No, you need to come to our store and we will put you in clothes that make you look like a brand new person. You can't be a good provider if you have your family in that house, in that neighborhood. We've got a neighborhood that's right for you where everything will be perfect. And you might say, well, yeah, but I'm not that gullible. Let me ask you something. Do very, very smart people, billionaires, do they spend millions of dollars advertising unless you and I are gullible? I mean, we are. We need to recognize that. These things influence us. And it's not just ads. Sometimes the voices that destroy contentment come from people who care about you, people who love you. When I was a pastor for the very first time, I was 26 years old when I first became a pastor. Can you imagine? And my first church, I did everything. I preached three times a week. I, I visited everybody who was in the hospital. The local funeral home realized that, you know, I had a small church, so I had a little more time. So they called me anytime somebody died who didn't have a church. And so I did lots of funerals. In addition, I was also the church custodian. So I cleaned every week. I, I drove people to their doctor's appointments. I, 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 let, I started and led a youth group. I was doing everything. And, and I, honestly, I was loving it. But sometimes uh, people who knew me and loved me who were not in the church, would, they, they'd say to me, Jeff, you shouldn't be doing that kinds of stuff. Pastors shouldn't do those kinds of things. You should let the members step up and do those kinds of things. And the prob- problem was I started to believe that. I started to look at pastors of bigger churches and say, okay, now that's the way it ought to be. They just sit in their office and, and study the Bible and, and get ready for, ser- for church on Sunday. And, and that's, that's what I'm called to do. You know, that's when I'll really enjoy ministry. And, and the irony is I'm, I am one of those pastors now and I'm working harder now than I did back then. So you don't really know. And, and what God said to me as I, as I prayed about all this is he convicted, of me, convicted me of this, this sense of entitlement. And, and essentially I realized... I, I don't deserve better. I don't deserve to be pastor of this church. I don't deserve to be a child of God. That came by grace. So be grateful for the blessings you have. Don't listen to those voices of discontentment. Some of them care about you. Some of them say, you know, your your husband, your wife should be treating you better. And maybe that's true, but don't let that make you think that you deserve better. That, That you know, that's, this is how we get into trouble. This is how we end up committing terrible sins. Somebody says to you, oh, your, your company works you too hard. Maybe so. But what if God has placed you in that company or on that school campus specifically to be a witness to this person or to that group or to this whole office? God has already given me everything I need to be satisfied. If, he, if I need something else, he'll give it to me as I serve him faithfully. One more thing, pray for contentment. If contentment is something we have to learn, something only God can teach us, ask him to teach you. Pray and say, Lord, 
make me content. Think about those situations I talked about earlier when you pray to win a race or to pass a test or to do well on a promotion or to uh, uh, do well on a presentation or to, or to get a raise. Why would God ever say no, right? You, know, you may be wondering that. Why, why doesn't God give us everything we ask for as long as it's something good? Well, we don't know. Maybe you didn't win the race because that other kid prayed too. Is God supposed to choose between the two of you? Maybe he just said, you know, whoever's faster is going to win. Maybe you didn't get the raise because God knows that if you had more money, you wouldn't do good things with it. Maybe, maybe you didn't do well on that presentation because God has, is trying to teach you something through this and you're going to become a better person. Maybe you didn't pass the test because you didn't study and God doesn't want to sanction that. We don't know. We do know this. God answers every prayer you pray the way you would have prayed it if you knew what he knows. There is never a time, I guarantee you, when you stand before the Lord on your judgment day and you're in the presence of all that holiness and all that wisdom, here's one thing you won't say. Hey God, remember that time you didn't give me what, you, what I asked for? Explain that to me. Because I think once you get into his presence and once you see his face, you're gonna say, okay, I understand. He knew what he was doing. He does not fail. In fact, I know, I know, I know human nature, so I know there's probably people here who are thinking, you know, this contentment thing sounds awfully holy and biblical, but I, I just can't ask for it because I don't want to settle. I don't want to settle for what I have now. I want God to give me more. I'm afraid if I pray for contentment, he's going to stop giving me. I want to scratch and claw and grasp and, and beg and, and do whatever I have to do to get every ounce of blessing out of God that I can. And I think that is the absolute wrong way to look at God. See, I, I think that if God gave you a choice today between a billion dollars tax-free or the power to be content for the rest of your life exactly as you are now, you should take contentment. You know why? Two reasons. Number one, because that money's gonna go away a lot faster than you think especially once all your relatives and homeboys show up out of nowhere and say, hey, heard about the good thing you experienced. Just look at the story of any lottery winner. Whereas that contentment, once you learn it, it becomes a shield around your heart. It helps you. It protects you from anything this world can throw at you. You have joy that, that is real, not pretend, not a, not a phony smile that you put on to impress others, but something that... that enables you to walk in joy and victory through whatever the world throws in your face. And it will throw a lot in your face. And it will draw others to Christ when they see you walking in victory through all of these things. But the second reason why you should choose contentment, think about what Jesus has done for you and for me. God is not a God who sits high in a throne and dispenses his blessings like a king tossing out gold coins. He's not someone who just arbitrarily chooses to bless this person or that person. He's not someone who, who confers his favor on somebody who's especially good. No, he's the God who came to us. Gave up his privilege and power in heaven, emptied himself of all of his prerequisites, everything that he deserved. And he died on a cross for us. He died in your place to make you fit 
for heaven's throne to make you fit for the kingdom of God. Do you really think that a God who would do that for you would ever deny you anything you really need? If you mean that much to him, then is there anything he won't give you that you truly need? Is there anything that you want that he doesn't want to give you? As long as it's in your best interest. Do you not think you can trust a God like this? Because once you realize that Christ died for you, that he loves you that much, you can stop chasing the butterfly. You can sit still. You can let happiness light upon you. And you can learn to be content in the blessings of God.